You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Rosita Boland about her personal essay, Something Different, Something New, which was published in number 67, the summer 2017 issue of the magazine. Rosita Boland is a senior features writer with the Irish Times and a former journalist of the year. She's written two books of poetry and two books of essays. Elsewhere, One Woman, One Rucksack, One Lifetime of Travel and Comrades, A Lifetime of Friendships. She's from County Clare. Rosita, thank you for joining me on the Dublin Review podcast. Delighted to be here, Angela. So, um, as I was saying when I introduced you there, the essay that you're going to read is from six years ago. And um, while you've only contributed a couple of pieces to the magazine over the years, you are a prolific essay writer. And your connection with the Dublin Review actually goes all the way back to 2002 to number, or 2005 to number 20, I think it was, where you published a piece that I think somewhat intriguingly titled House of Hutchinson, House of Murphy, an essay about the difference between Tato in the north of Ireland and Tato in the Republic. Could I just bring you back to that time? Because it's 20 years ago almost. And I associate your essay writing with, uh, you know, that it's more recent. Most people will know you as a journalist. But 20 years ago, were you writing a lot of essays at the time? And how did you come to write this piece about Tato Crisps for the Dublin Review? So... I suppose I wouldn't really I wouldn't really see that as an essay, but it was I had this idea. I can't believe that it's all that long ago. Uh, I had this idea to write a nonfiction book called uh, which was ultimately called A Secret Map of Ireland. And I decided to write one kind of unusual, obscure thing about each county in Ireland uh, because I've been to each county many times and I just thought it would be you could have 100 people write this book and they would with the same premise and you'd have 100 different books. It was just what interested me. Um, looking back, I did it far too fast. I did. I went to all 32 counties in a year while I was also working full time and I researched and wrote it and published it within the year. And I did it far too fast. I didn't really meditate very much on it. So I'm not really very proud of that piece of work at all. But one of the pieces um, and the county was, I think, Armagh. Um, So there is a tato factory there and they sell different kind of tatoes. As a friend of mine said, they're Protestant tatoes. So... Essentially, there were two different companies, the Tato that we see on sale in the Republic of Ireland with cheese and onion and salt and vinegar and the jolly little Tato man and the red and blue and his big stripy jacket and everything. Um, You won't find him up Mm. or certainly didn't anyway back then. Um, So they're a whole different because it's a different company. They have different flavors and they can only sell those products in Northern Ireland. And so the potatoes that were produced here at that time in Dublin, um, they weren't sold in the north. So now this is years before Tato Park was on the scene, which is now called something else again, uh, the theme park. But they had... Uh, in the north, they had um, a factory. You could go on a you go on the tour of the the, the Tato factory, and it was just 
quite bizarre because it was it everything was different, but it was still Tato. Even the Tato man looked different. So basically, the essay was about writing a bit about this company and how it had, you know, how it had parted into two different strands. And I bought a couple of bags of Tato's from from there and then a couple of bags of other our Tato's and invited some friends around for a blind test. And uh, <laughs> uh, that was a bit of that was a bit of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting because it's such a recognisable brand. And I imagine the taste test people passed immediately because of the distinctive taste. But aside from all of that, that was the first essay of yours that I had read because I knew you was a journalist. And then I started looking into your 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 work and um, read your travel writing and then have since read your book about friendship. Um, as well. So you've two collections of essays that you've that you've written. So I'm wondering, looking back 20 years ago, was that one of the first you say that you don't really see it as an essay, but it was published as an essay and was part of a collection. Was that was that your first time kind of dipping your toe into essay writing or did you still see yourself very much as being exclusively a journalist at that point? Yeah, I suppose I don't really see that. I mean, I was delighted that it was that it was uh, published in the Dublin Review and it was at a stage before, you know, before the obviously the, the book appeared. But as I said, I did it too fast. I'm not proud of that book. Mm. I I think it's very slight, really. Um, but in the last couple of years, I've written two collections of essays um, within two years of each other, one in 2019 and the other in 2021. And I was kind of uh, surprised myself, actually, <laughs> that it, I suddenly seemed to have things that I wanted to say. Mm. And the first one was Elsewhere, which is a, it's a book uh, which is about nine different journeys I took at nine different times in my life and there I have taken like one pulled out one piece from each of those different journeys to focus on and there could you know I could possibly write another one of those books because there is an awful lot that I you know that I didn't put in but I really enjoyed that and I always keep a diary when I'm traveling and I never set out ever to write a book. Um, but I had all my diaries and I suppose I had kind of always thought, oh, it has to be linear. You have to begin here and you begin there. Sorry, you begin there, here and you, you finish there. And but you can really write in any way you want. So my what I eventually kind of came up with when I just saw all my diaries on the shelf and I started to go back and kind of read them is that maybe I could just pull out different um, incidents from some of these many journeys that I took over time and kind of weave them together and the sort of the overarching kind of unifying bit was this dictionary that I had read from start to finish and marked all the words that I liked and each uh, each essay is is got a uh, is named for one of these words. Mm. So that's kind of the, the through line 
um, and travel and where you are in your life and all of those things. Yeah. And so the essay you're going to read today, um, something different, something new, that, if I'm right, is in the second chapter of Elsewhere. And it's Wunderkammer. Is that the word? Wunderkammer? It's a. Yeah. Can you explain that to me. So it's it's a basically German for a cabinet of curiosities. And the I lived in London for a few different times in my life. And so that, too, is an elsewhere, even though we might think that it's it's very familiar to us. But I had some really bizarre things <laughs> happen to me while I while I lived in England. And this the essay, which was in what, 67, um, that is an extract from the it's a it's, a, it's part of a, a longer essay um, which is based in uh, England. And I do have to say that it actually did happen because I have I have had people asking me, mm. did that really happen? And I said, yes, absolutely, totally, 100 percent happened. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk to you about that after you read it, because um, I absolutely believe that it did happen, uh, but it does read like short fiction. You know, it's incredible the shape of it, but we maybe we'll talk about that in a bit more detail after you read it. Um, the one thing that does, I, I am asking you this as a fellow journalist and as somebody who I think in my career as a journalist, I've definitely written more about myself than you have written about yourself. Were you shy about writing about yourself or do you see them as being very separate? Because my experience now of writing about myself is that I'd love to write longer pieces that, you know, the newspapers or even publishing online. People expect your piece, if it's a personal piece, to be 800, 1200 words long, 2000, maybe in a magazine. But to write longer uh, personal pieces, I suppose what we call life writing now, they tend to be well over 2000 words long. And um you know, I just it you write them so well that it feels as though you could have been writing these all along. I mean, you have a career now that must be how long have you been a journalist? Maybe thirty years, is it? Close twenty five years. Twenty five. <laughs> okay, okay. Sorry, Adrian. I'm not aging you. I'm making your career longer. Did you, did you have a reluctance because you were a journalist to write about yourself? Is that why it took you until five years ago to really sit down and start writing them? Well, uh, you know, as other as other people have said, you know, on this podcast that there is um, there's sort of a tension between working as a journalist and doing your own personal work because they come from very different places. And mm. as a journalist, what I do mostly is human interest stories and reportage and I'm focused on other people's stories. And apart from your style, which, of course, is uh, watermarked through any piece that you would one would write, the eye is absent as it should be because the focus is on the people and the story that you're reporting on. So it is a bit it was a bit strange um, to think about, well, would I have anything kind of interesting to say? And I when I I always I always and still always uh, keep a diary when I'm traveling, but I never it was for my own pleasure. It was never for, you know, I never post on social media or I never wrote about it. Um, and but quite well, not well, sometimes I would uh, regale friends at a dinner table about some stories from my travels and they say, oh, you should write something. And but it, I hadn't. 
this, I suppose the stumbling point was finding a structure because all these journeys were over. Um, and I had, like I said, I never set off with the intention of writing a book. Mm. So I had to kind of figure out kind of the structure. And was it hard? Yeah, it was hard. Um, so when I was writing elsewhere, I was in a creative writing workshop of two with myself and my good mate uh, Tanya Sweeney who's also a journalist and God help Tanya we would meet every fortnight we'd have dinner we would critique each other's work that we sent each other and she her mate she was brilliant in so many ways but her main function was I have got to beat it out of you that you've got to stop writing stuff like a reporter because you you've got to you got to bring yourself. I don't know how you're feeling about things, as she kept saying. I don't know. Where are you? Mm. And um, that was really a, a really kind of a breakthrough. And I realized, well, I have to uh, I just have to um, turn around and look in a different direction and focus on something else. And it is hard because if you are writing about yourself, you there is an assumption that other people are going to find it interesting, which is, you know, quite egotistical, mm. really. I guess all writers have have uh, egos of, of various sizes. And, you know, I'm very confident about my journalism and I really love to do it. And but writing about your own life is it, it is very different. Um, but I suppose what I discovered was that all of the skills that you have as a writer and your style and sensibility, you can refocus it and those uh, those skills and, you know, use them to kind of investigate yourself. Um, and once you get over the kind of, oh, my God, what am I doing writing about myself? You just kind of get on with it. Yeah, the squeamishness around it. I suppose it is that you don't think of yourself as having a human interest value the way that you would when you're writing other people's stories. But it's about relatability. So it's not even about egotism. You know that other people enjoy reading your stories because there's something in it that there's a universal appeal or there's and that's why you have to reveal yourself. It's, it sounds to me like Tanya was actually a great person to do that with because people often aren't that honest about your work, particularly if you are a good writer. They'll say, well, that's well written, but they won't tell you what the problem is, you know, that you're writing as a journalist you're reporting on your own life I suppose you know she she did tell me many times what the problem was so I finally <laughs> the, finally the message got through so yeah, yeah I owe her lots of lots of thanks for that yeah would you read the piece for us Rosita and we'll talk about it in a little bit more detail afterwards something different something new at three different times in my life I lived in London London, for me, was always about earning enough money to go elsewhere. I was always coming back from somewhere, flat broke and planning the next escape. The second time, I was 24 and had just returned from a year in Australia. I had my first proper job, working for a publishing company as an editorial assistant. It was a permanent position with a pension, but although I didn't say so in the interview, I never had any intention of staying long. For the greater part of a year, I lived in the upper half of a house in Agar Place, Camden Town. 
Heavy goods trains that ran only at night pounded through to King's Cross and sometimes shook me awake, but I liked feeling part of a city where things were happening all the time. There were no bookshelves in my attic room, and so the many books I bought or brought home from work were all on the floor in stacks which regularly collapsed like literary masonry. The flat had an absentee landlady and her sister was my flatmate. After some negotiation, it was agreed that a modest sum would be provided for me to buy a set of second-hand bookshelves as long as I could arrange their delivery. I went about perusing the pale orange pages of Loot, at that time the go-to publication for anyone looking for anything in London, whether a job, a flatmate, a car, a puppy or a set of second-hand bookshelves. I found many ads for bookshelves, but none that were also offering delivery, a problem as neither I nor my flatmate had a car or could even drive. Eventually, though, I found an ad for bookshelves on sale for £25. The address was in Primrose Hill, not far from Camden, and free delivery was included. After checking with the landlady that this price was acceptable, I called the number. A man answered. It was agreed that I should call to the apartment on Saturday morning at 11am and that if the bookshelves proved suitable, he would drive me back to Camden with them. At the appointed time, I stood outside a red brick mansion block and rang the bell. The door buzzed and I took the old-fashioned cage lift up to the third floor and knocked on the door to the left of the lift as instructed. The door opened so swiftly that the man who opened it must have been standing directly behind it, waiting for my knock. He was standing alongside a woman whom he introduced as his wife. The two of them seemed markedly overdressed for eleven on a Saturday morning. The man wore a white shirt, a cravat and a waistcoat. The woman wore a taffeta skirt in dark blue. They were both silver-haired and perhaps in their seventies, although I have never been good at guessing people's ages. Their names were Henry and Margaret. Margaret took my coat and then they proceeded to give me a tour of their apartment. I was shown the galley kitchen, the small bathroom and the bedroom. I stood in the doorway and stared at their double bed with its red candlewick bedspread folded back from the white pillowcases. There was a reproduction of constables, the haywain, on the wall over the bed and bedside lockers either side. The bed was neatly made but from under one of the pillows a stray pyjama leg extended out. I had no idea why I was being shown their entire home. I had never bought anything through the small ads before, and if there was an unwritten code of conduct that went along with it, I did not know what it was. I was eventually shown into the sunny living room, where an empty three-shell bookcase was awaiting my inspection. It was perfectly fine. I was invited to sit down. Sherry? Henry asked, though it was more of a statement than a question. Of course you'll have a sherry, Margaret said. I'll have one too. I took the glass of sherry offered to me because I did not know what else to do. I perched on the edge of their sofa and they relaxed back into two armchairs, holding their glasses out in an attitude that suggested a cocktail party while grilling me politely but extensively about my life. How long have you been in London? Where are you working? Do you like your job? What do you make of London? You're Irish, aren't you? Where are you from in Ireland? Do you miss your family back home? I answered their questions with a growing sense of bewilderment. I had a line of sight out to the hallway 
and it struck me as I sat there awkwardly sipping sherry I did not want that I had heard the door being locked and bolted after my entrance. It also struck me that nobody knew where I was. My flatmate had known I was going out to get the shelves, but it hadn't occurred to me to give her the address. We never did things like that. Sitting there, I had a moment of sudden panic. Was the sherry drugged? Was there some weird code I had missed in the wording of the ad, whereby this elderly couple now expected me to participate in some unspeakable sexual act? Why had they shown me their bedroom? Then Margaret asked me how I spelt my name. I spelt it for her. We never had a Rosita before, she said, putting down the glass and reaching for something on a nearby table. It was a notebook. She opened it and then flicked back through the pages. Oh, she said, you're Irish. Perhaps you can tell us the correct spelling of an Irish name, a girl's name. I don't think we got it right and we forgot to ask. She spelled out E-E-F-A. I was staring hard at her by then. A-O-I-F-E, I replied automatically, utterly confounded. And then their story emerged, a story they told with the degree of what I can only describe as merry fortitude. They had met each other late in life. After they had both retired in the same rural English town they lived in, whose unfamiliar name I forgot as soon as I heard it. Neither had been married before, nor had children, but they each owned a house. They lived for a few years in Margaret's house and then decided to make another big life change. We always fancied living in London, Henry said. The bright lights. The shows, Margaret said, her taffeta skirt rustling. City life. Something different. Something new, Henry said. Henry got up to refill our glasses. I stared down into the amber-coloured liquid, distractedly wondering how much sherry they got through. They seemed so jolly, a word that came unbidden into my head, a word I never usually used. They were so eager to be heard. I sat there, now pressed back into a corner of the sofa, listening, my hand carefully gripping the glass's bright, clear stem. They told me they had sold both their houses and bought the one-bedroom apartment in Primrose Hill but life in London had not worked out the way they had thought it would. Bloody big city, Henry said, matter-of-factly. Hard to get to know people. We don't even know our neighbours in this building. We do go to shows, Margaret said. We love the shows. But you can't be going to the West End every night. They spoke with sunny, unembarrassed honesty of being aged newcomers to a big city where they had no social networks, of the realisation that they would be spending most days and nights on their own, three floors up in their mansion block. Underneath the cheeriness, the story of their loneliness in London gradually revealed itself, as shockingly intimate in its way to me as the pyjama leg protruding from under the pillow in their bedroom. And then we discovered loot, Margaret announced brightly. It's free to advertise. We had brought too much furniture with us, so we advertised to sell a table we didn't need. They had offered free delivery with the table, and before long, their phone rang. Sometimes we have as many as three people a week, Henry said. We like it best when they come on Saturday, like you, because everyone has more time to talk then. It can be very rushed in the evenings during the week. Everyone is usually so busy. We got an answering machine, Margaret said, in case anyone was ringing while we popped out to the shops. We don't do it every week, Henry said. Every second week, usually. 
It's something to look forward to. We never know how many people will ring, you see, and of course, not all of them come to the flat. It's not very good manners to say you're coming and then you don't show up, Margaret said. That happens sometimes. We've got to see a lot of London, actually, Henry said, driving people around. There was a very large television in one corner of the room. Margaret gestured towards it with her outstretched sherry glass. We bought that with our earnings, if that's what you'd call them, she said gaily. She pointed to other parts of the living room, encanting its departed furnishings to me. The space was defined by absences. There was a writing desk that had belonged to my mother there, she said, and I looked at the void on the wall behind me. Aoife, the one with the funny Irish name, she bought the standard lamp that used to be at the end of the sofa. We didn't need it. I was afraid Henry would trip over the flicks. Now, Margaret, Henry reprimanded, but he was smiling. It was a girl called Suzanne who bought that nice wooden towel rail we had. You know the kind, the upright ones, the old-fashioned ones, she said. Yes, I said. That was one of the first things we advertised. The bathroom here is a towel rail attached to the wall. Where was it Suzanne was from again, Henry asked. Margaret consulted the notebook. Balham, she said. Suzanne was from Balham. She was a social worker. Balham was at the other side of London, south of the Thames. Suzanne had definitely been lured by the free transport. I asked Margaret if I could have a look at the notebook and she handed it to me. The notebook had a picture of a bucolic garden on the cover, glowing with pink rose bushes. Two thirds of its pages had been filled with small, neat writing. Every entry was meticulously dated. The first date recorded was some 18 months previously. Margaret noted everyone's name and what they had bought and where they had come from and what they did for a living. You have lovely handwriting, I found myself saying. I never said things like that, but it seemed important just then to say something. You do, don't you, Margaret? Henry said proudly. I always said you had beautiful penmanship. I turned the pages of the notebook with fascination, imagining my own name in there by the end of the day. I wondered if Henry and Margaret told the same story to all their callers. Their clothes made sense to me now. I was their social occasion for the week. I must go, I said eventually. We carried the bookshelves into the lift and went downstairs and put them into the back of their car. Then the three of us drove to Camden Town, Henry and Margaret continuing to ply me with questions until we pulled up outside Agar Place and I got out with the shelves and waved them goodbye forever. You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast and that was Rosita Boland reading her essay Something Different, Something New, which appeared in number 67, the, the summer 2017 issue of the magazine. Rosita, thank you for reading that for me. Um, do you enjoy reading? Because you read that beautifully and I imagine you're not used to reading your work aloud being a journalist, but it's probably something you've had to get used to um, having written two anthologies. Yeah, I do. it's it's fun to read out loud. Um, I don't even think about it, just go into a different zone. Yeah, you must really be writing in your own voice. That's what that tells me when I see you reading something like just with such ease, you know, that it is completely your own voice. Um, which brings me to what we discussed before you read it, where you said that somebody had asked you, did it really happen or was it fiction? And um, when I read this first, I had to go and check, was it a short story? And it wasn't because it's unbelievable. 
it's because of the way that it's written and the kind of granular detail in it that it is written. I w- I'd be very proud of this if I'd written it as a short story because there are a number of details in it that are just so visual and that stick with you. The first one is the pyjama leg coming out from under the pillowcase. It just says so much. It's such a good tell about this couple. And the other one, for some reason, is the clear, bright stem of the sherry glass. I can just see it in your hand. And was that something you're that imagery? Are you conscious of that when you're writing? Because that's what made it read like fiction to me was how beautifully it was written, not the actual facts or, you know, what happens in it. So I suppose uh, I am. I'm very observant and when I go to interview people, I'm always looking to see what can help me understand a little bit more about their lives, which is why I hate doing interviews on the phone because you've got nothing except the sound of somebody's voice. And I think I have a very kind of visual sensibility. Um, So I notice a lot of things that most people might not, not most people might not notice, but I'm just really interested in in the visual things that I see around me. And I also know as a reporter that people love detail and the more detail you can give, the more authentic it all feels. You trying to bring the reader with you into the space. Um, It wasn't really anything I sort of consciously did. This is really the way I remembered it. And I can remember things very clearly, even if it's been after a long time. And I guess the other thing is that I started out my writing life as as a poet. I'd written two books of poetry and obviously imagery is incredibly important in poetry, um, as is the choice of words itself, because poems are so short. Every every single word and syllable needs to work really hard. And it needs to be something like a painting that you can come back and read over and over again, like a painting. You keep looking at it and looking at it. So there has to be it has to be like kind of a. A lake that you can jump into and find different things every time, go for a different swim. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because it does feel like you are like you are painting a picture. You know, the imagery is that strong in it. And then I wondered because I know that for years you kept travel diaries and journals, but didn't take photographs the way that people do when they're traveling. And that, I mean, I don't know if that's still the case because now you've got, you know, a camera on your phone, but that this was something that you deliberately did. You know, were you recording things in your mind? I almost do have a photographic memory for things. Or were you writing in granular detail down the things that you were seeing? I wrote a lot uh, in my diaries when I traveled and also everything is so fresh and new that it's it, it you know it's easy to respond to things that are so new um and I do have very clear memories of how things look I kept always kept paper ephemera for my trips so I kept tickets I kept you know receipts here and there and I would put them into sort of little photograph albums when I came back. So they were they were like my photographs. So they were they were sort of aid memoirs as well. But the biggest thing about keeping a diary and going when I was writing elsewhere and going back 
because you can Google pretty much anywhere in the world and you can have a look and see what it's like now, is that the one thing you can't retrieve is how you felt about things at the time. So that's what I was able to retrieve when I read my diaries about because we, you know, people are not static. Um, we we're changing all the time. So I was able to put myself back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. What was I actually feeling about particular things there? And the kind of, I suppose, the the pure, fresh version was in there. And that helped me kind of bring that time back. So it was easy to just sort of write about it then. Mm. And has the way you travel changed over the years? Are you still as intrepid as you would have been um, in some of the experiences that you describe and elsewhere? Well, I just came back a couple of months ago from seven months um, traveling. I took some time off work and I went out the road again. And yeah, I still have my rucksack and I still you know, still as long as I have a leg under me, I will be going as far away as possible. And then when I am older, I'll be pottering around Europe and doing easier things, I guess. But yeah, it's always the draw of elsewhere is just irresistible to me. And also, you know, we live on an island, so to gain perspective on a lot of things, it's useful to get off the island, which I, I refer to sometimes as the rock. Yeah. Yeah. So are you writing um, at the moment beyond your journalism? Are you are you continuing to write essays? What, what are you doing at the moment? I think I'm figuring out what I want to do next. I really enjoyed writing those two books of essays, particularly elsewhere, but they, they were both very different books. And yeah, I'm just going to figure out what I'm figure out what I'm going to do next. But, you know, the thing about write, writers never retire. We're always up to something. Um, and I do really love my day job. I love being a reporter. I get an enormous amount of satisfaction out of that. And I'm lucky enough to work on long form stories and I have the time to do that. And I love doing that sort of in-depth uh, reporting and it's I just find that I just love it really. So mm. it's I feel very lucky to have that opportunity. Uh, you talked about writing poetry there. Have you ever considered writing fiction? Have you? Is it any appeal to you? So I have so much admiration for people who write fiction because like yourself, <laughs> because that is something I just couldn't do. It's it's all of my I suppose everything I've ever written has been based on things that actually happened. And I don't, I just can't, I have tried a couple of times, not very hard, but I have tried a couple of times to write fiction. And it's like, uh, I don't know whether it's just working as a journalist for so long or I'm not able to go to that other place. But also, you know, it's uh, it's OK. There are a lot of people who want to be novelists and I am not one of them. I'm very happy to write nonfiction and journalism and I'm really happy with that. That's enough for me. Yeah. So could I ask you about that, about creative journalism? I mean, do you somebody told me once when I said to them that I was in a writing class and somebody said to me, well, such the group who, who here has written before? And I said, well, I've been writing, you know, for the last 15, 16 years. I write every day. I'm a journalist. And they said, um, no, we mean real writing. I was so offended because I put so much work into 
you know, into features I'd written and columns that I'd written. And I get a sense reading your work that the words of the choice of words and the sentence structure really, really matters to you, that it's well written and that when you sit down, that that's on your mind as well, that you want this piece to be, you know, to be crafted you know, that you've got a particular style. And I would say that as well about, I mean, your colleague Patrick Frayne in the Irish Times, who's also written for the Dublin Review, you know, that it's not simply a matter of throwing the words down on the page, that it does matter. And I see that as, you know, creative, that there is a really creative aspect to that. Well, I, I wouldn't say creative in that we don't make anything up. No, no, I don't <laughs> mean that. I mean creative in the um, sense of the actual choice of words and in the structure of it and of how... It, you know, as you say yourself, you're trying to bring people in and paint a picture. You're trying to recreate words that creative and inventive journalists do not like these words. I get it. I understand. But there is a craft to it. Perhaps that's a better word for it. Well, I guess, you know, myself and Patrick have been at this now for a long time and he is an amazing journalist. He's got a, a, a particular voice and there is nobody like Patrick Rain who can make you laugh and make you think. And as for what your compatriots in the writing class were saying that you when you're doing proper writing, I mean, you get uh, I write for a living as a journalist and that is that I consider that to be proper writing. Um, so I I, th- I don't think it's helpful to have kind of I wouldn't what I call it snobbish or whatever. I mean, I write for a living as a journalist and I'm very happy about that. Um, do I consider I don't consider the work I do as a reporter to be any less than the work I do in my own for my own um, writing. I, I approach them both with um integrity and trying to do the best that I can. And I value I value them both the same, really. They're very different kinds of writings, but they have the same kind of value. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have really enjoyed reading your collections of essays. I continue to enjoy reading your journalism and to admire you hugely as a journalist and your achievements as a journalist. Um, And I think you're a great writer, Rosita. So thank you for joining us today on the Dublin Review podcast. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast presented and produced by Angela Flannery in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. You can listen back to previous episodes on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. The Dublin Review is edited by Brendan Barrington. It's supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Dublin Review.